0: So how do we how do we know? You know, it's like uh, I think I'm a smart consumer of news. I read multiple platforms instead of just taking my news from one place, you know, but I I probably know a lot less than I really do. Um, You know, so what are some helpful practices people can put into place to help them recognize that maybe um, they're just reading something that's going to just reinforce what they already believe? This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia warsaw poland san francisco california and sydney australia first-time listeners and long-time listeners we are grateful you are here for the conversation we also want to give a special shout out to some of our podcast listener supporters including carson fushi cindy foldendore bill johnson ralph stocks and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of cbf and before we move on we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors the center for congregational health McAfee's School of Theology, Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now, on to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the Center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Jeffrey Bilbro. He is the editor-in-chief for Front Porch Republic and associate professor of English at Grove City College. Jeff is also an author of several books, including Wendell Berry and Higher Education. Jeff, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me today, Angie. I'm looking forward to talking with you. All right. So as a uh, tremendous Wendell Berry fan, I'm going to avoid all questions about um, The Great Poet because um, that would get us away from what we're ultimately here to talk about, which is your new book, which we'll get to in a, in a few minutes. But I, I am fascinated. I want to learn more about Front Porch Republic. Tell us about um, this uh, platform that you edit and uh, what the hope is behind it.
1: Well, if you know Wendell Berry, you got a good feel for what we're about. Um, it was started back in 08 during the the financial crisis and um, kind of a bunch of guys and, and people interested in Berry and concerned that as this so like too big to fail and all this rhetoric around you know saving the economy was so focused on bigness and not actually making any changes but just kind of reinstating the status quo so a bunch of people tried to think about uh Wendell Berry's ideas from a political perspective and economic and cultural and literary and uh theological as well so you know we still we still host a conversation um on our website about as our tagline puts it place limits and Liberty, but it's, you know, we're, we're just in a localism interested in agriculture and Wendell Berry stuff. And then we also publish a, a semi-annual print journal and publish some books and some other, other ventures do a conference, but um, it's a really, it's a really life-giving uh, community and uh, a source of sane conversation in a sometimes crazy Uh, Crazy online world. Uh, I'll have to admit, I've I've not read your book um, on Wendell, um, so this might be
0: a dumb question. Did you get some time with him as part of that process of writing it?
1: Yeah. So I, um, I met him. I've met him a few times Uh, early on. I was kind of the starstruck fan, you know, on on the margins of a conference or something, and then. I actually presented, Jack and I, my, my co-author on this uh, the Windleberry and Higher Ed book, we presented a version of that argument at an FPR from Port Republic conference, where Barry was the keynote. And, you know, sometimes the keynotes, not, not at FPR conferences, but at, at conferences in general, the keynotes will kind of swoop in, give their talk, and swoop out. But Barry and Tanya show up first thing in the morning at 8 o'clock, and they're there all day. And uh, so, so Barry heard our talk, and we talked with him afterwards, then we've been out to his house. Uh, he's spoken at other FPR conference. So yeah, I've, I've been able to get to know him a little bit and correspond with him over the years. And I can certainly say as, as others can, that he is as gracious and funny and wise in person as you would expect from his presence on the page.
0: So you've, you've got this new book. Reading the Times. This is an invitation to examine how we read and watch the news literarily and theologically. You wrote, I want to take a step back and gain some theological and historical perspective on the more fundamental questions about the very purpose of the news. So um, what did it to you? What what news story
1: or outlet compelled you to
0: write this book?
1: Well, it's kind of've uh, been toying with these ideas for quite a, quite a few years, in part uh, sparked by my interest in Barry and healthy communities. And then just watching myself and my students kind of struggle to, to navigate what are often very unhealthy online communities and, and news discourse. And uh and yet speaking of unhealthy discourse, it was a tweet that provoked this book. One of my friends, um, Martin Wendell Jones uh tweeted out that Christians really need a book about how to think carefully about the news. And that was the kind of provocation I needed to crystallize a lot of these uh thoughts that had been gestating, I guess, for a while. And uh so after that I kind of put together the the outline and um tried to to collate a lot of these ideas that had been mulling around and and then I wrote the book. So,
0: you know, um, you know the historical perspective of this book is, is fascinating because for, for as long as oral history has existed, human beings have consumed the news. Um, you know, in your research, what makes our species psychologically and, I guess, theologically so drawn to knowing what's going on in the world?
1: Oh, wow, Andy, it's a big question. <laughs> um, Yeah, you're right that the news is as old as human communities and cultures right um and yet i think it takes different form today than it has for much of human history um so humans have always i guess been drawn to to find out what's going on um but for most of human history there i i think there wasn't a sense that something radically new could happen so um, you know, this is, I talk about this a little bit in my time section. For most of human history, there has not been a con- consistent global calendar, right? People dated events from um, the reign of a particular king or a particular uh, earthquake or flood or some other natural event that everyone could remember And the idea is that there's just not anything radically new that's going to happen. You know, uh, kings rise and fall, dynasties rise and fall, empires rise and fall, droughts come, disasters come, but nothing fundamentally disrupts the order of the world. And obviously the Christian gospel says, well, there's good news and something happens and it's good and it's new. And so in the wake of that, uh, Uh, There's a lot of complex story here that I try to tell briefly, but um, in the wake of that, eventually you get this sense of a progressive notion of of history that new things are happening and that there's a radical break from the past. And so I think in the last couple hundred years, as technologies of communications and and other kinds of technologies have accelerated, there's more and more of a felt sense in our culture that... um, Things are getting better or progressing or moving some way and um, new stuff is happening and it's really exciting. So the, the kind of curiosity that, that maybe that preys upon is a perennial human problem, uh, challenge, tendency, and yet the, the ways that we experience it today are you know relatively, within the last couple hundred years, I think, relatively new.
0: I imagine your research, um, you observe the the growing chasm of the ideological news outlets that reinforce shared worldviews and superficially embellishes opposing perspectives. Um, you know, but one only has to take a peek at the news from you know 220 years ago, reading the sensational claims against each other, and then Thomas Jefferson and John mm-hmm. Adams presidential race, to see that. We've been doing it this way for such a long time. Yeah. But our, our consumption of news convinces us uh, to only ingest what reinforces held views. You know, why, why is that? In your research, have you discovered why that's the case?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of good research, I think, on this. You can, you can look at it from a, a psychological perspective and how, you know, th- things like confirmation bias uh, other other kind of framing biases lead us to uh, you know you know read news and, and resonate with the the kinds of perspectives that we already agree with and discount those that we disagree with. Um, but you're right that that this is you know maybe not a uh, it hasn't constantly been a problem, but it's a reoccurring problem, uh, particularly in the last couple hundred years, where the news gets really polarized and really um oriented around different partisan narratives so you see that in the in the early republican years obviously then we had a civil war um, and you know i think in the mid 20th century due to a variety of reasons um some technological some geopolitical with you know the, the greatest threats to america being outside and sometimes when your enemies are outside that kind of unifies um the community uh, That that the polarization of the news seem seems to diminish, Um, but obviously in the last several decades at least it's it's amped up again. And I think when the ecosystem is so polarized, it makes it even makes both more difficult, but also more important for Christians to um, to kind of resist those tendencies and find ways to foster uh, real dialogue and. you know, listen to and think with people from from different perspectives than our own. Let's talk about
0: clickbait. It's a term that refers to eye-catching headlines that sensationalize a story in order for readers to 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 read or to to click and and view and watch something. Um, you wrote, "We can't simply blame journalists for these developments. Existential economic pressure leads newsrooms to adopt such tactics." and they wouldn't be effective if readers demanded more substantive fare. Um, you know, are you surprised at how easily people fall prey to these tactics or you know, in studying uh, these specific tactics, you know, were, you, were you shocked or surprised by some of them?
1: That's an interesting question, Andy. I think sometimes I am surprised when, uh, you know, I'm an academic, I work on, uh, on a college campus and I interact, correspond with a lot of smart people and uh, so, yeah, sometimes I think I can be kind of guard that someone whose work uh, or thinking I really respect in some ways uh, can fall into these same habits. But it's also, it's, then it's a good reminder that we are all prone. I think it's Daniel Kinneman in his book, Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, he talks about how he's studied um, sort of psychological biases for a long time for his whole career, really. He's won a Nobel Prize. And he he says something to the effect that he doesn't think he's really any more um, immune or guarded against these errors, these fallacies than he was when he began. So that's kind of a sobering uh, a sobering thought. Um, so I think we have to be sort of honest about our own susceptibility that we can oftentimes see the moat in our neighbor's eye more clearly than we can see the beam in our own eye, as Jesus reminds us. Um, and that's why we need... Uh, healthy thick communities who can call us out and say, "Hey, you know, you're going down a a, a black hole here in terms of what you're reading and thinking about," and you um, know I mean, that's what we need—good friends to, to hold us accountable.
0: So, how do we how do we know? You know, it's like uh, I think I'm a smart consumer of news. I read multiple platforms instead of just taking my news from one place. You know, but I I probably know a lot less than I really do. Um, you know, so what are some helpful practices people can put into place to help them recognize that maybe, um, they're just reading something that's going to just reinforce what they already
1: believe. Yeah. Well, I think, um, a couple things to that one is some of the practices that we think uh, about maybe aren't as helpful as, as they seem to be. And actually after the book, then I, I read this New book by Chris Bale called Breaking the Social Media Prism. That's quite good. And he talks about, uh, he sort of provides confirmation of um, something I argue in this book, which is that diversifying your social media feed and just reading people on different sides of the political spectrum doesn't necessarily make us more informed or more thoughtful or um, lead us to a kind of a fuller perspective on truth. And part of the uh, I mean, he's done studies, right? The people who are exposed to more views, more diverse views on social media actually become more polarized and also are, are less able to accurately um, sort of respond or, or represent their political opponents' views. So they, they have a more warped view of reality. So sometimes I think um, we need to actually, perhaps paradoxically, Read less and spend more time um, engaging with our neighbors, um, engaging in dialogue with people. Reading books, uh, reading reading things of substance. You know, Alan Jacobs talks about um, temporal density, right? having this sort of uh, a grounded sense of reality in grounded in old books, grounded in long essays, grounded in real conversations with people. Um, and that then enables us to uh, engage more thoughtfully uh, and with discernment in the conversations of the, the digital public square. So um, that's, I guess, one cautionary word. And, you know, Throughout the book, I try to give some particular examples of ways that we can practices that we can undertake that might help. So um, one, maybe... Small, but I think helpful thing that I suggest is uh, going for a walk, sometimes walking through our neighborhoods, um, walking through through where we live, can, uh, it's a different kind of social media, right, it it can put us in touch with the people who live around us, um, the concerns of their times and and their lives, and uh, act as a sort of counterbalance to the formation that we get from our screens.
0: We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, who invites you to support its mission of equipping thoughtful and practical leaders for service in the church and the world. Thanks to the generosity of a committed donor, all gifts to BSK through December 31st will be matched dollar for dollar up to $20,000. Your gifts will support students from 10 states who are preparing for Christian ministry at BSK. Give today at bsk.edu give. BSK wishes you a blessed Advent and Christmas season. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast It's no wonder that many churches um, successfully, you know, uh, saw through this pandemic that live stream and pre-taped worship experience worked. Um, you know, people at home were able to do with worship what they do with Netflix, Hulu, at Disney Plus. You know, watch it while they're also mindlessly thumbing through their phone <laughs> or reading a right. book or eating a little too much uh popcorn you know, our attention spans and engagement has drastically shifted with the times that's why we consume our tweets in 280 characters or less or you know 60 second videos on tiktok or news stories that we wouldn't read unless they had a bold font type for highlights of what we actually need to know from the article yeah. um, you know what what's shifted in our capacity to to pay attention for only shorter periods of time and how does that are affect our our relationship with the
1: news? Yeah, I, I think a lot of us are aware of those shifts, right? I mean, I think of Nick Carr's book, The Shallows, that came out maybe a decade ago now, um, that that was quite prescient in these shifts. Um, and and I think, uh, yeah, again, a couple of things. Maybe you know, your your point about church services is relevant because that's just a great reminder that some of these virtual substitutes are not lossless substitutes, right? There's a real, maybe, maybe in times of um, extremity, they can be, you know, the right thing to do, but uh, there's real, uh, a real loss involved in shifting um, an embodied worship experience to a screen. And similarly, you know, there might be a real loss involved in shifting um, our, our, engagement with the news from a printed paper that arrives in our doorstep to a um, a timeline that we scroll through and is filled with, you know, cat videos and a long form essay and a, a clickbait headline and, you know, photos from from our friends. So uh, maybe, you know, we have to find ways to navigate the reality that we live in, but we should also be be cognizant, I guess, of the consequences and the losses involved. And then uh, seek whenever possible to uh, to pick up better uh, better practices, right? So, um, one of the things that I talk about in terms of attention is uh, if if we're interested in news stories of a particular topic, you know, maybe we're drawn to issues of racism or or climate crises or um, international relations or migration or whatever the, you know whatever headlines seem to be catching our attention. Maybe that is a a sign that we are called to dig deeper into that topic. And so maybe rather than trying to know a little bit about everything that's going on, it would be more healthy and we might be able to to think more carefully if we read a bunch of books and essays um, about the history and sort of deep uh, issues regarding one particular topic. And then uh, that will inform the way that we read stories about, about that topic. And hopefully that will give us insight in ways that we can be responsive to those issues and, and get involved in way in redemptive ways in our communities or uh, whatever our sphere of influence might be.
0: You wrote, uh, news as spectacle, whether a political scandal, a natural disaster, a terrorist attack, or almost any story as rendered by television shapes those who consume it to be passive spectators. So there are two key thoughts that, that come to mind that I want to unpack. The first is since we have become such passive spectators of the plight of others lives through the news, how do we develop a healthy empathy through the experience of the news and those being covered by a story?
1: Yeah, that's a tough issue. And I think, um, you know, I talk in the book about uh, a phrase from a Charles Dickens novel, um, telescopic morality. And he talks about a, a lady in London you know, this is 19th century, but uh, who is so obsessed with orphans in Africa that she neglects her own children and renders them de facto orphans? So I don't think that's healthy. Uh, Charles Dickens kind of makes fun of her, and, and she's you know a caricature. But I think too many of us can can see elements of truth uh, of that of that distortion in our own lives. Um, so it's not to say that we shouldn't care about things that happen. Uh, that, that show up in the news or that happen far away, but that we should seek to care in a kind of proportionate manner, and in a, a manner that's proportionate to um, our ability to respond. So that it's not just information we consume, but um, but information that we respond to. Um, and and that's why, uh, and oftentimes the proper response is a local one. Not always. Sometimes, you know, thanks to technologies and um, the way the world works now in a global, uh, globally interconnected society, that we have opportunities to respond effectively across, across distances. Um, but one sort of lodestar for me, one um, example that I think is healthy here comes from the poet Wendell Berry, who we talked about at the beginning. Uh, he has this great poem that he writes in response to a newspaper article he reads about um, a Siberian woodsman and this is during the Cold War, when uh, Americans and Russians are supposed to hate each other and be at war. And Barry reflects on how his own relationship with his children and with his place and with you know farming and fishing enable him to imagine uh, what the life of this person whom he's never met might be like, and to imagine him as a not as an enemy combatant, um, but as a human, a fellow human person. And I, so I think sometimes we we put kind of local and global responsibilities in tension, but um, ideally, uh, properly understood, uh, we are able to empathize rightly with with distant events to the extent that we love those close at hand rightly. Um, so, so if we want to empathize better with people people far away, we might need to start closer at hand. So there's the,
0: the other side of this, you know, that as we've talked about, that we tend to consume news that uh, reinforces our worldview, that sometimes we can care too passionately about a news story, especially if it ends up being a misleading news story that right. we see people do insane things in our world. Um, you know, so how do we know the balance between being sensationalized by a new story, and having a thoughtful, differentiated relationship with what we are reading or watching?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and I see this all the time. Uh, Yeah, it's frustrating and concerning, and I think it's challenging uh, because all the things I said earlier about our own fallibility applies, Uh, but we need to you know, I think I think I talked a little bit about doing an uh, an emotional audit sometimes. Like, what are we getting outraged about? And if I'm getting all worked up and angry about, you know, some stupid thing that TV talk show host said last night, or uh, about a crazy person uh, who said something in a street protest, or you know, some outlandish thing that happened that's probably not healthy, right? I'm probably getting all emotionally worked up about really random, rare, uh, non-typical things. And that's that's distorting my emotional balance. It's it's distracting me from attending to things that I will actually be able to uh, respond to or think more carefully about. And so I think sometimes, this is where I talk in the book about the need to practice um. Holy apathy or sancta indifferentia, which is, a, is an idea I, I developed from Blaise Pascal. Sometimes we have to just uh, cultivate a kind of apathy toward these things that would um, distract us from what's more important. And um, again, like I said, things that we can respond to um, with greater redemptive action. So that's that's easier said than done but i do think it's healthy to to take a step back and and think you know what am i getting worked up about what am i outraged about and is it really what's grieving god's heart or am i just outraged at how stupid my political opponents are (laughs) and if it's the latter you know maybe we need to tune out a little bit more
0: i think part of the problem is for so uh, many, uh, you know, we we have associated our political views with God's views, and right, <laughs> that's right. a different conversation. That's do for another time. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the critical arguments you make in this book is that knowledge and insight, knowledge and insight, should be consumed and processed and community with others. So, why is community so important for how we process the news, and
1: and what critical ways should that community take shape? Yeah, this is a big topic. Um, One of my favorite quotes here is from Zainab Tufuki, who's uh, a great sociologist writing uh, today. And she has um, a a great line in one of her essays where she writes, she kind of talks about why is it that that people just are not persuaded by facts that that are inconvenient. And she concludes that belonging is stronger than facts. And I think that's quite um, incisive. And a lot of social science has backed up her her claim, right? So much of our day-to-day reasoning and decision-making is based on our intuitions rather than deliberate, careful reasoning. So uh, that, that therefore means that we need to be really careful who we are thinking with and alongside who we imagine ourselves as members of, because those are the people who will form just you know, through our daily interactions with them, who will form our effective intuitive responses to what's going on. So if we're around people who care about certain things, you know, if, if I'm living here in Western PA and I'm around people who care about the Pittsburgh Steelers, you know, over time I might become a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. It could happen. Um, and and that's the the power of community to shape what we attend to and what we care about. So um, instead of trying to like uh reject that power and and be independent thinkers uh which is you know impossible i think it's it's maybe more prudent to try to belong well to communities of folks who think think well and you know that's where uh reading small uh, journals uh who who kind of develop thick communities of readers um is, is a good idea there's some interesting experiments happening with kind of private Facebook groups or Slack channels or Discord servers or these other things that I don't even know about, where people are trying to, um, you know, have maybe private conversations with, with small groups where we can just think together and um, process uh, what's going on in our lives and in the world together. And through that, we start to catch from others. Um, the the kind of emotional posture that we should take toward the events of our day so um that's how you know that's i think how we work as as creative beings and and again rather than trying to pretend that's not the reality and just think more carefully it's probably more prudent to to belong well to one another so that we can think with people who are are thinking well this is you know again comes back to the church theology of the church that we are created to be in membership with one another
0: yeah let's let's turn our attention there i think um there's a growing trend in the church right now that we are uh, becoming more ideologically divided you know churches uh so many churches are not embracing the idea of theological diversity uh but you know pulling to the right or pulling to the left and you know, you, you can't be a part of us unless you fit into these uh, particular ideas or have these core values. You know, our, our our churches are becoming, you know, this divided place with the 2016 and 2020 election proof of our division within our communities over, over politics and, and candidates. I don't know how many friends of mine that spoke out against things, um, you know, during the last administration, during the last election cycle, and Or chastised, you know, over it, Um, you know. So theologically, what might ministers do to create healthy platforms for spiritual formation and civil dialogue around the many things that are going on in our communities in the world?
1: Oh, Andy, that's such an important but difficult question. I think, yeah, it really grieves me, and I and I think you you said it really well. But it really grieves me that that the American church landscape is becoming more and more uh segmented along uh political divides you know especially i think you talked about the recent elections but i think covid too has exacerbated this where um people now want to go to a church that responds to covid in you know just the right way <laughs> and everyone has a different opinion on what just the right way is right and The tragedy there, I think, is that we have put uh, lesser goods before theological goods. So so instead of prioritizing grace and truth and the unity of the body of Christ and love for one another, we prioritize having the right political or um, medical opinion about something. And that is ridiculous. And yet it also speaks to um, the way that so often We are um, Americans or Republicans or Democrats or whatever first, and then also Christians. And so I think um, reversing, reorienting the the order of our allegiance is important. Uh, And obviously, you know, someone like Paul or or St. Augustine has a lot to say about that, about where, where our primary allegiance should lie. But that's easier said than done. It's easier for you and me talking about it to, to say this is how it should be. It's tough when you're a pastor leading a church and you have congregants on one or both sides um, saying sayonara because they don't like your your politics or your response to the virus. Um, So I think there is a role for kind of parachurch organizations to help because maybe it's less threatening when it's not coming from your local congregation and when, when there's an encouragement to talk to people, but then you don't have to also worship with them on, on a Sunday. So I think that can be uh, a, a help. And I think, um, you know, pastors need to be creative in their local contexts regarding what kinds of uh, spaces for conversation and dialogue that they might establish and, and cultivate um, that, that could help people own their commitment to the body of christ first and foremost and say hey we are christians we belong to one another and we can also talk about these issues and we can walk out of this room still disagreeing about uh vaccines or masks or whatever um and and yet know that we belong to the body of christ and that that is our primary allegiance and commitment So again, it's easier said than done. I don't have any like magic wand, but I think uh, that is one of the most pressing challenges in the church today. So, you know, last question, kind of getting to uh,
0: your area of expertise, if you will, as an English professor, Um, you've drawn on key historical and literary figures such as Wendell Berry, Thomas Merton uh, Henry David Thoreau, Dorothy Day. D- tell us why these influencers were important for
1: shaping this book. Oh, wow. I guess maybe p- part of it is, um, cause I've, I've done a lot of research in, you know, 19th century American literature. And, um, although some of those ones you named obviously aren't 19th century figures. Um, so they're just the people I know and have and learned from part of it too, is I think, um, and I get this from Charles Taylor. So Uh, But I I think that sometimes we can look for a system, you know, or a set of principles. And if we just figure out the right system, right set of principles and apply this rule, these codes, boom, we can bring about the desired result. Uh, And yet life ain't like that. And life is a lot more complicated. And so uh, I think in the Christian realm, what God gives us, he gives us rules, but he also gives us a whole panoply of exemplars. And if you've read the Bible, you know that uh, these people are not all the same personality. They don't have the same approach. They're, they're so different. You now, famously, uh, Peter and Paul are, are so different, right? They're, they're different styles, different conversions, different um, goals for their ministry. Uh, and, and you see that again and again. You, in, you know, the, the Catholic tradition or the Orthodox tradition, they have saints. And you realize there are many ways to lead a holy life and that a holy life can look drastically different um, from a different kind of holy life. And so I think it's helpful to, especially for a topic like this, to not, to not settle for a set of rules, You know, like these are the six things you must do to read the times well or to engage the news well, but rather to say, here are some people who navigated these challenges uh, with wisdom and grace. Let's look what they did. Uh, let's see how we can learn from them and, and follow their example. And maybe, you know, God's call upon our lives is to take a little bit of this from Merton, a little bit of this from Dorothy Day, and a little bit of this from Frederick Douglass. Um, you know, maybe it's not going to be a one-to-one model, but, uh, but hopefully they can inspire and encourage and, um, and give us hope when uh, we're not sure what the best way forward looks like.
0: The book is Reading the Times, A Literary and Theological Inquiry into the News. Our guest is Jeffrey Bilbro. You can follow his work at jeffbilbrow.com. Uh, Jeff, thank you for making the time to have this conversation, and thank you for inviting us to
1: a fair forward together. Thank you, Andy, and thanks for your work, uh, you know, hosting these conversations and trying to help us all um, live wisely in our, in our present moment.
0: This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, Theology.mercer.edu to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky the Center for Congregational Health and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cbf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.